Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and sexual content that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Jock! Here, Jock! Come here, boy! Whoa. Tommy! Where did you... Ow! Check it out. Now that is a climbing tree. Reckon there's some bird's nests up there? One way to find out. Seriously, guys. My mom will skin me alive if she finds out we've been on Lord Cobham's land again. There's something in here. Some kind of... dead animal. I can't reach it. Here, use this. Ah, almost. Ah, there. Got it. I... Ah! <laughs> you all right, Rob? That was some fall. Tommy. Hey, Tommy, look. It's the thing Rob pulled out of the tree. Jiminy Christmas, Fred. That's not something. It's someone. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of three episodes on the Hagley Wood Mystery, otherwise known as Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm? It's the unsolved murder of an unidentified woman whose skeletal remains were found inside the hollow of a tree near the West Midlands area of England in 1943. Well, this week, we'll cover attempts by police to identify the body and some of the early theories involving witchcraft. Next week, the story continues with the grisly, potentially occult-related murder of Charles Walton. Then, in two weeks, we'll wrap up both mysteries and investigate theories linking the Hagley Woods skeleton to Nazi spies. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. At the heart of the English countryside, between the cities of Birmingham and Worcestershire, lies the area known as the Black Country. 
The name stems from the ugly coal seams and thousands of ironwork foundries that belched smoke into the sky during the 19th century. But today, it's home to verdant rolling hills, thatched roof cottages, and pockets of dense forests. Amidst this idyllic setting, near the towns of Hagley and Stawbridge, lies Witchbury Hill. Take a stroll around and you will find sections of low earthen walls. They're the remains of a hill fort built during the Iron Age, long before Britain was conquered by the Roman Empire. At the center of Witchbury Hill is another more obvious monument, a massive black obelisk towering 84 feet into the sky. On a clear day, it can be seen from as far as Shropshire, 35 miles away. Yet the area's most unusual element is not the obelisk itself, but a message graffitied at its base. In hastily scrawled large white letters, it asks a decades-old question that has yet to find an answer. Who put Bella in the witch elm? This question has vexed the residents of Hagley and the surrounding area for almost 70 years. Take a walk around the town, and you will likely see it scrawled on other buildings and walls. Clean off the paint if you like, but eventually, days or weeks later, the words will return, just as they have since World War II. But who is Bella? What is the Witch Elm? And who put her there? The questions first arose on April 18, 1943, when four teenage boys were traipsing around the black country with nothing on their minds but their next meal and whatever mischief they might find. Come on, gents. Jock's got the scent. Just like the last dozen times. Guys, wait up. Their names were Tommy Willits, Bob Farmer, Robert Hart, and Fred Payne. The four friends had spent most of the day wandering the countryside, scouring the hills and vales for a rabbit to bolster their family's food rations. World War II was in full swing, and many British citizens lived in constant fear of attacks from the Nazi Luftwaffe bombers. For the previous two years, the nearby city of Birmingham had been on the receiving end of some of the worst bombings. Tommy, Bob, Robert, and Fred lived far enough from the city that they didn't have to worry about being blown up in their sleep. On nights when the air raid sirens sounded, they would sneak out to Witchbury Hill to watch the distant bursts of red and orange exploding over Birmingham. But there were no bombs or sirens when dusk fell on April 18th. There had also been no rabbits. Determined not to go home empty-handed, the boys turned off the road into Hagley Wood, and onto the estate of Lord Cobham, thinking that they might pilfer some eggs from a bird's nest. About 30 yards into the woods, they happened upon a tree that seemed particularly promising. The twisted and gnarled trunk was five or six feet tall and nearly as thick around. Beginning almost at the base of the tree, a mass of long, bare branches stretched out in every possible direction, giving the impression of an exploded broomhead. Later on, everyone from newspaper reporters to the police would peg the tree as a witch elm. The witch in this tree's name, spelled W-Y-C-H, derives from the Old English word wicca, W-I-C-E, meaning pliant or bendable. And while there might be a tenuous connection between the trees and witchcraft, the origins of that witch is far more difficult to pin down. And neither words are connected to the witch in Witchbury Hill. 
which derives its name from the ancient Saxon tribal kingdom of Witcha, spelled H-W-I-C-C-E. In any case, the tree the boys had stumbled upon was most likely not a witch elm, but Corylus avalana, a common hazel. Hazel trees are unique in that their branch systems can be cut back and harvested for wood year after year without killing the tree itself. This ancient forestry technique, known as coppicing, triggers the growth of new shoots that build on one another. And as it grows taller, the expanding shoots tend to form large, hollow spaces in the tree's center. The boys knew that the coppice tree's hollows made perfect hiding places for birds to build their nests. And they decided to check if the massive hazel held anything they could take home with them. Robert Hart clambered up the tree before anyone else could. When he reached the top and peered down into a particularly large gap, about four feet up the tree's trunk, he received the shock of his young life. Something was staring back up at him. At first, Robert thought it might be a dead animal who had gotten trapped in the hollow tree, but he wasn't able to reach it to find out. One of the boys on the ground snapped off a branch and passed it up to help with the investigation. After several minutes, Robert was able to hook part of it with a stick and pull it out. The boy's jaws dropped as they approached the round, white object lying on the forest floor. Bloody hell. That's a human skull. Brilliant deduction, Bob. The Royal Medical Corps will be dying to have you. Don't touch it. While most of the flesh had rotted off long ago, there was still a small patch of dried skin on the right side of the scalp. Seven-inch strands of brittle brown hair, laced with moss and dirt, flowed from the patch. After passing around the skull, the boys' conversation turned to what they were going to do next. We've got to tell someone. Uh, did you forget we're trespassing? Lord Cobham will have us shot. Assuming Fred's mom doesn't get us first. Oh, God. Rob's right. We put it back. We never tell anyone about this. Agreed? But are we uh, agreed? Yeah. All right. We put it back. The boys returned the skull to the tree, agreeing never to speak of it to anyone. But not all of them were convinced that staying silent was the right thing to do. Tommy tossed and turned throughout that night. The skull grinned at him from the darkness of his imagination, brittle wisps of hair flowing from its scalp. The discovery had affected him more than the other boys, despite the fact that he was two years older than them. At 17, Tommy was less than a year away from being conscripted into the armed forces. Most of the older boys that Tommy knew had gone off to war and never returned. He thought that if his corpse was found in a tree, he wouldn't want to be left there, his death forever to remain a mystery. He would want someone to tell his mother. By morning, Tommy still hadn't slept a wink. At the breakfast table, his parents took one look at their son's red, baggy eyes and knew that something was up. The sleep-deprived Tommy was no match for their interrogation, and within minutes, he confessed what he and the other boys had found in Hagley Wood. Tommy's father contacted the police, and within hours, Tommy was leading Sergeant Chris Lamborn, Sergeant Richard Skerritt, Constable Jack Pound, and Motor Patrol Sergeant Jack Wheeler into Hagley Wood. It took the better part of the morning to find the tree again. 
Once the men had climbed up to verify that the remains were human, they headed back to the Clint Police Precinct to report the discovery and arrange for a detective to visit the scene. A special constable was placed on guard at the tree overnight. The next day, April 20th, they returned to the crime scene with Detective Superintendent Sidney Knight, Deputy Inspector Tom Williams, and Dr. James Webster, a pathologist and the recently appointed director of the Birmingham University Forensic Science Laboratory. Climbing the tree was far more difficult for the adult men than it had been for Robert Hart, and it seemed almost as though the hazel's long, slender branches had been designed to keep anyone from getting close. Eventually, they were able to determine that more of the skeleton was trapped inside the hollow tree. But the hole was too narrow and too high off the ground to safely retrieve all of the remains. They would have to cut it open. An axe was fetched, and Constable Jack Pound began hacking into the massive hazel tree. Before long, he had carved a deep gap in the face of the tree, essentially hewing it in two. When Jack Pound finally stepped away, the men crowded around to stare in at the ghastly sight. Wedged inside the tree was what appeared to be a complete human skeleton. Whoever this person was had been forced feet first through the narrow hole in the trunk. The flesh was long gone, the bones having been ravaged by insects and animals. As the corpse decayed, it had slid deeper and deeper into the base of the tree. The hazel's root system had continued to grow, weaving its way through the bones and intertwining with the fragments of rotting clothing that still remained, until it seemed like part of the tree. As the men set about the painstaking task of documenting the scene, a sudden stroke of luck put officers in cheerier moods. One of the men found the identity card of a young woman on the forest floor a short distance from the tree. Perhaps the mystery would be solved before supper. If they had had any idea of what was to follow, they would have not been in such fine spirits. The riddle of the body in the tree had only just begun. Coming up, the police try to identify the skeleton from Hagley Wood. Now, back to the story. On April 18, 1943, four teenage boys found the decomposed remains of an unidentified person wedged into the hollow of a tree in Hagley Wood, England. The skeleton had been picked clean by insects and wildlife, and some of the smaller bones had been carried off. A search of the area revealed a shin bone hidden among the roots of a nearby sapling, and several other bones scattered around the area. Some newspapers stated that bones from the skeleton's right hand were found on the forest floor a few yards away. Though Dr. Webster, a forensic pathologist who inspected the crime scene, made no mention of such a discovery in his initial report. There were a few other items recovered from the crime scene. First, a pair of women's size five and a half blue leather shoes, one found at the base of the tree, the other a distance away. Second was a cheap gold wedding ring. The final and most promising item was a woman's identification card. The investigators were relieved and briefly hoped that the skeleton belonged to the woman named on the card. But when they visited the address on the card, they found its owner was still alive. 
Hello? Hello, ma'am. Sorry to bother you at home. Your address was listed on this identity card, and we wondered if you knew the owner. Oh, thank you. That's my card. Yours? Yes, I've been missing it for months. Wherever did you find it? That's just it. This card was found in Hagley Wood. Hagley Wood? You mean where they found that woman in the tree? Well, yes. We actually thought this card might have been hers. But that's so strange. I've never been near Hagley Wood in my life. Really? Never even been to Hagley. Can I have my card back? Sure, you can have it back. Just as soon as we catch whoever put that lady in that tree. Mysteriously, the woman had no knowledge of how her ID card had ended up in Hagley Wood and claimed to have never been there in her life. With no evidence to discount her story, the police were forced to move on. All hopes of quickly identifying the body now rested on the shoulders of Dr. James Webster, the forensic scientist tasked with analyzing the remains. It was already late in the evening on April 20th before Dr. Webster was able to take the skeleton and clothing back to Birmingham University. The forensics lab was practically brand new, but the windows had already been blown out in a recent Luftwaffe bombing. Rather than bother repairing them, they had been boarded up. Dr. Webster had never gotten used to the frigid drafts that snuck through the boards, but the cold suited the cadavers. After putting on an extra sweater, he got to work assessing the body from Hagley Wood. The following is taken from his official forensic report, completed on April 23rd. On the 20th of April, 1943, at about 6.30 p.m., I recovered from the hollow bowl of the stump of an elm tree in Hagley Wood certain human remains and garments. The combined bones make up a human skeleton, and they are parts of one body and one body only. The skull is undoubtedly human and is that of a female. It appears to me that a very likely description of the deceased would be a woman aged between 25 and 40 years, most probably around 35 years of age, uh, five feet in height with light brown hair, and noticeable irregularity of the front teeth and the lower jaw, clad in a dark blue and mustard-colored woolen cardigan, with cloth-covered buttons and a blue belt. A mustard-colored woolen cloth skirt with a side-zip fastener, a peach-colored taffeta rayon underskirt, navy blue interlock cotton knickers, corsets, and crepe-soled shoes. The advanced degree of decay made determining the cause of death difficult. There were no signs of any physical damage or violence to the skull or to any part of the skeleton. There was a piece of taffeta fabric wedged in the skull's jaw, which led Dr. Webster to hypothesize that the woman could have died from asphyxiation. However, the material matched the woman's underskirt, leading to the possibility that the fabric had found its way into the mouth after death, most likely while the skull was being removed from the tree. Later, the teenage boys who found the body agreed that they might have forced the fabric into the skull by prodding it with a stick when they tried to dislodge it from the tree. But even though he wasn't able to confirm the specific cause of death, Webster was confident of one thing. The woman had been murdered. The entrance to this tree was extremely narrow and would have caused not merely inconvenience, but actual injury 
if even a small woman of this nature should have forced herself into the tree. Further, I do not think that this was a likely position for committing suicide. Accident, I think, can be entirely ruled out. The tree, however, afforded an excellent concealment for a murder. From the position of the skeleton in the bowl of the tree, I am of the opinion that this woman was pushed in feet first. Moreover, she could only have been pushed in conveniently, either before Rigamortis set in, or after Rigamortis had passed off. Well, the last remaining question would have the biggest effect on the police investigation. How long had the woman been in the tree, and when had she died? Once again, the advanced state of decay made it difficult to say for certain, especially as the unique enclosure within the hollow of the tree made it difficult to estimate how the climate and elements could affect decomposition. Dr. Webster ultimately determined that the woman had died at least 18 months before she was discovered, but could have been in the tree for up to three years. Well, this placed the time of death sometime between late 1940 and October 1941, when Dr. Webster made the final observation that based on the recovered fragments, the woman's clothes appeared to be thin and of poor quality, and there was no sign of a coat. This suggested that she had died during the warmer months, most likely during the summer of 1941. The police immediately launched an extensive investigation to identify the remains, examining the missing persons reports from 1940 to 41, hoping to find someone who matched the Hagley Wood skeleton's height, age, and hair color, and other distinguishing characteristics. But after scouring over 3,000 reports, they did not have a single promising lead. A second promising avenue of exploration was the woman's dentistry. Her teeth were distinctive, and she was missing a molar from her lower jaw that they believed had been professionally extracted. The police contacted every registered dentist in England hoping for a match. Once again, they were disappointed. There was one area where they had slightly more success. The midnight blue leather shoes were traced back to the manufacturer, and it was determined that they were most likely sold at a market in Dudley around early 1940. They were well-worn but somewhat expensive, worth about 13 shillings 11 pence. Adjusted for inflation, that would be around 50 pounds sterling or 60 U.S. dollars today. There was one problem with any assessment of the shoes, though. The police could not say definitively that they were connected to the murder at all. While they had been found near the tree, they were several sizes too large for the victim, and there was no evidence that they had been padded with material to make them more wearable. Ultimately, it didn't matter much whether the shoes belonged to the body or not. While the manufacturer could guess when and where they had been sold, there was no record of who had bought them. Once again, the investigation had run into a wall. Oh, the fact that the police were no closer to identifying the remains after several months of searching was mysterious on its own. If this woman had suddenly been murdered and disappeared, one would think that someone would have noticed her disappearance. And yet, she matched no missing persons records, and no one had come forward to claim her. It was almost like she had never existed at all. By Christmas, the locals had mostly lost interest in the tree murder riddle. There was a war on, after all. 
With people dying every day and the Nazis still making occasional bombing runs on Birmingham, the identity of the moldy, moss-covered skeleton couldn't hold the public's attention for long. But that all changed in the winter of 1943, when certain messages began to appear. It began with a single sentence scrawled hastily on the wall in the borough of Old Hill near Blackheath. In three-inch-tall capital letters written in white chalk were the words, Who put Lubella down the witch elm? For well over a month, the graffiti went virtually unnoticed. Then, on March 28, 1944, Mr. L. White woke to find another message scratched on the side of his house. Who's there? What the devil? What's the matter? I heard someone writing on our wall, but they ran off before I could get a look at them. And then I found this. Hagley Wood? Bella? What does it mean? I don't know. Annoyed, Mr. White headed to the police station to report the vandalism, but along the way, he encountered yet another message in the same handwriting. Who put Bella down the witch elm? You there! Did you write this? Of course I didn't. I just came out to find some hooligans vandalized my shop. Same as my house. What do you think they want? I suppose they want to know who put this Bella girl down the witch elm. All of a sudden, the messages began popping up all around the Black Country area. They appeared on building walls and fences from Hales Owen to Wolverhampton, always in the same white chalk. The content of the messages varied, but only slightly. Annabella died in Hagley Wood. Hagley Wood Lubella was no pros. <sighs> yeah, right. But as time went by, the messages settled into a consistent form. Who put Bella in the witch elm? (laughs) Well, wouldn't we all just like to know? The police photographed the messages and took chalk samples, which they submitted to a local forensic lab. After examining the handwriting, the lab determined that the messages had been left by the same person. This seems significant. Someone who claimed to know the identity of the woman found in Hagley Wood was traveling all around the area to leave teasing messages. Even if they were merely a mischievous prankster with no knowledge of the case, at least they were putting effort into their ruse. And the use of the name Lubella in the early messages was strangely specific. The police posted ads in the paper asking the writer to come forward, but no one did. They re-examined the missing case files that had already been dismissed, searching for women named Bella or Annabella or anything similar, but no new leads presented themselves. Well, there was one new discovery. An old police report that had been all but forgotten now seemed incredibly significant. One night in July of 1941, Sergeant Skerritt and Constable Jack Pound had responded to two reports of a woman's screams heard near Hagley Wood. The officers had searched the area, but found nothing. Twenty months later, the officers wondered if those screams had belonged to Bella, if that was her real name. Even if it wasn't, the explosion of graffitied messages had ensured that the name would forever be associated with the skeleton found in Hagley Wood. 
While the messages hadn't given the police any significant new leads, they had created a rash of new interest in the mystery. And with that came a spate of new theories. In the coming months, whenever the locals of the black country met in cramped pubs and taverns, it was only a matter of time before their conversation found its way to the question graffitied across their villages. The thing that bothered most people was the same issue that had vexed the police. Now that Bella's story had been plastered across newspapers, why was no one coming forward to claim her as their daughter, mother, or wife? One possible explanation was that Bella was a foreigner. If she was killed soon after arriving in the country, she might not have had time to make any meaningful connections. And it would at least explain why no English dentist would claim her as a patient. With England in the midst of a war, perhaps it was only a matter of time before someone suggested that Bella was an enemy combatant. One popular rumor said that she was a Nazi spy who had parachuted in one night, landed in the tree, got stuck, and died. The theory quickly fell apart for anyone who sobered up long enough to give it a full consideration. First, the tree hollow was far too narrow for Bella to have fallen into it herself. And second, where was her parachute? Home with the paratrooper thesis in tatters for all but the most inebriated theorists, the residents of Hagley, Dudley, and Stawbridge soon turned to another age-old enemy. Some locals remembered that the plots around Hagley Wood had been frequented by passing caravans. If Bella was Romani, it might explain why no one had reported her missing, especially if, as a new rumor stated, she had been executed for some crime or offense against her own kinfolk. Spurred by the rumors, the police investigated and confirmed that two Romani families, the Smiths and the Butlers, had camped in the area around Christmas of 1942. But actually bringing any of the family members in for questioning would be easier said than done. The Smith surname belonged to a massive group of Romani descendants spread out all across the country. In the end, the theory resulted in little more than a waste of police resources. All of this could have been avoided. There was never any evidence to support the premise. Additionally, the mere suggestion of an execution was patently absurd, as no such activity by Romani peoples has ever been recorded. Furthermore, none of Bella's clothing, nor anything about the crime scene, suggested that she was Romani. Despite the lack of evidence, allegations that Bella was a gypsy or killed by gypsies persisted. But there was one other theory, darker than the rest, that had long persisted in the more superstitious corners of the black country. In these grim, dusty taverns, whenever the name Bella was mentioned, it was accompanied by whispers of black magic, pagan sacrifices, and witchcraft. In 1945, they would come rushing to the surface. Coming up, we'll explore the theory that Bella was the victim of an occult ritual. Now, back to the story. Beginning in late 1943, bizarre messages began showing up on the walls and fences of Birmingham, Worcestershire, and Stawbridge, written in white chalk in large, crooked letters, 
they referenced an unsolved murder from the previous year, when a woman's decomposed skeleton was discovered inside the hollow of a tree in Hagley Wood. The cryptic messages had given the woman a name, Bella, and incited a mystery that would last for decades to come. While the police searched for a missing Bella, Lou Bella, Annabella, Isabella, Clarabella, or any variation thereof, the locals entertained themselves by imagining potential backstories for the woman. The odd manner in which the skeleton had been buried invited some macabre theories, which were only heightened by suggestions that Bella had been a Romani executed by her caravan. While that theory proved fruitless, it birthed an even darker suggestion. Some of the locals were convinced that Bella's death was evidence of black magic. At first, the rumors of witchcraft seemed like mere rumors, and they might have remained that way had Bella's story not attracted the attention of one Professor Margaret Murray. Coming, coming. Thank you, Dr. Webster. It's cold as the devil out here. I wouldn't say no to a cup of tea, and then I would like to see her straight away. I'm sorry, see who? Bella, of course. You don't think I've come all the way from London to freeze on your doormat, do you? London? Oh, you must be Margaret. Oh, we didn't expect you until tomorrow. Please, come in, come in. Uh, Edith, put the kettle on, will you? Professor Murray's here early. In 1945, Margaret Murray was a professor of anthropology and Egyptology at University College London. At 82 years old, she had enjoyed a long and storied career as an archaeologist and historian, and was lauded for her contributions to countless significant excavations and discoveries. She had been the first woman to publicly unwrap a mummy, earning her the nickname, the Old Woman of Egyptology. But Professor Murray wasn't just an Egyptologist. During World War I, when travel to Egypt became impossible, she had turned her eye to her home country of England. Since then, she had devoted her studies to remnants of an ancient pagan cult that she believed had survived to the modern era. This was the subject that drew her to Hagley and the mysterious Bella. In 1945, Professor Margaret Murray was one of the world's leading experts on witchcraft and the occult. Well, here she is. The majority of the skeleton was recovered, as you can see, but there were a few pieces missing. The hand. Where, where's the hand? I'm sorry? The newspaper said the right hand was removed. Where is it? Oh, oh yes, yes, some bones of the right hand were found a ways away from the body. Buried? Uh, in the dirt, I suppose. Here they are. Fascinating. The whole thing is such a mystery. I was sure the police would be able to find out who she was by the shoes or by her dental records, but there's been nothing. That's because they're talking to the wrong people. They need to find the coven. Coven? Yes, Dr. Webster. The coven. Somewhere in this area, practitioners of an ancient Dianic cult meet to practice their religion they've kept secret for over 1,000 years. They were here before the Romans brought the Christian god to these lands. And they're still here today, right under our very noses. 
noses? Good heavens. Find the coven. Only they can tell you who put Bella in that tree. For several years now, Professor Murray had advanced the theory that the Britons who were persecuted and hunted during the medieval witch trials had been followers of an ancient pagan religion that had existed behind the scenes in Europe since before the spread of Christianity. According to Professor Murray, these pagans worshipped a fertility goddess known as Mother Earth, or Gaia, and a horned god, who the Christian clergy had come to regard as the devil. She believed that they had continued to practice their faith in secret, passing down their ancient occult rituals into the modern era. Several elements of the Hagley Wood mystery had caught Professor Murray's eye and convinced her that witchcraft was involved in Bella's murder. First was the fact that the skeleton was found lodged in the hollow of the tree. Professor Murray pointed to a medieval belief that burying a witch inside a tree was an effective means to trap their spirit and keep them from tormenting people. This could suggest that whoever killed Bella and placed her in the tree believed that she was a witch. The second point was the peculiar choice of name bestowed on the corpse by the anonymous graffiti artist. She suspected that Bella might be short for Belladonna, an extremely poisonous plant commonly known as deadly nightshade and of special significance in witchcraft. In her 1921 work, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, Professor Murray listed belladonna as the primary ingredient in a witch's flying ointment. According to folklore, the ointment could be ingested for astral projection or applied to a broomstick, allowing its rider to fly through the night sky. Usually, this method of travel was reserved for witches convening to practice the witch's Sabbath. An alternative explanation hinges on the plant's purported hallucinogenic and psychedelic properties and suggests that the flying ointment was taken by medieval drug users to create the sensation of lifting off the ground, or flying. How do broomsticks fit in? Supposedly, the flying ointment, or witch's brew, as it was sometimes called, was too potent to be ingested and had to be applied topically. For the best results, the users would apply the salve to the armpits and the genitals. One method of this application being to first rub the salve onto an object, such as a broom handle, and then climb onto it, thus leading to the image of a witch riding a broom. Even ignoring other clues, Professor Murray doubted that the use of the name Bella and the fact that the body was buried in a tree were a coincidence. But if she had any doubts, another detail put them to rest. Several newspaper accounts of the discovery had stated that Bella's right hand had been removed and buried a distance from the body. As far as the professor was concerned, this was definitive evidence that Bella had died in a black magic execution, and her corpse had been used in the creation of an obscure but highly powerful magical object known as the Hand of Glory. The steps to create a Hand of Glory can be found in many a Book of Shadows, or Witch's Spellbook. First, you will need a criminal. Some recipes suggest that a male murderer works best, but any petty thief should work. Hang them, and while they're still warm, cut off their hand. Pickle it. 
Next, make a candle of fat rendered from the same person you took the hand from, using their hair as the wick. You can either make one large candle and place it in the palm, or extend five smaller candles from each of the fingers. You might doubt that anyone would want such a macabre device, but according to legend, the Hand of Glory is a favorite tool of thieves and marauders willing to dabble in the dark arts. The light from the candles are said to only be visible to the holder. It will magically unlock any door you come across, enter home at night, and the wicks will light to indicate the number of people asleep. They will not awaken until you extinguish the flames, and the light will never go out on its own. There is one significant problem with the Hand of Glory theory. While several newspapers had reported that the hand was removed and buried, Dr. Webster's forensic report did not show this to be the case. It's possible that the newspapers were referring to small bones from the hand, which were missing. Alternatively, Dr. Webster might not have noticed the detail, since a fair number of the bones were scattered around the tree, having been scavenged by animals. Well, in either case, the forensic report makes it clear that no part of the skeleton appeared to have been damaged or intentionally removed or severed. That didn't stop Professor Murray from publicly announcing her suspicions and urging the police to shift their investigation to ferreting out members of a local coven. The word of a respected historian and Egyptologist was enough to convince many of the citizens of Hagley and the surrounding area that there were witches living in their midst. To make matters worse, the cryptic allusions to Bella of Hagley Wood were still cropping up all over the area, though some of the new messages now came in different handwriting. Was there a copycat? Or had an entire coven of witches taken up the task of taunting their surrounding community with the galling question? Then, on St. Valentine's Day, 1945, the Black Country area was rocked by what appeared to be yet another occult killing. He was supposed to trim the hedges along the ridge. You can see he didn't get very far. Did you check the pub? No. He was supposed to be home by. Ah! Uncle! A 74-year-old farmhand named Charles Walton was brutally murdered on Meon Hill in the Firs, a large farm in the West Midlands country of Warwickshire. Walton's body was discovered by his employer, Alfred Potter, and his 33-year-old niece, Edith, who he had adopted some 30 years prior. They found him pinned to the earth by a pitchfork, with a prong stabbed into the earth on either side of his neck to trap him. A pruning hook was embedded in his throat. His death only one year after the discovery of the body in Hagley Wood would spark a new investigation and invite more accusations of witchcraft and pagan rituals. And all the while, more mysterious messages were appearing on the walls and fences of the black country to ask the question that still needed an answer. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, 
But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Sky King, Samantha Moore, Steve Pinto, and Brett Schneider. Brett Schneider.